Welcome to the Dr. Dad's Podcast, where a naturopath and chiropractor come together each week to share lifestyle medicine, health advice, and inspiring interviews with some of the top experts in health and wellness, bringing you the latest in nutrition, exercise, ancient healing, toxins and detox, your microbiome, mindset, hormones, brain, and much more. Stay tuned. We're going to teach you how to experience growth daily. Everybody, this is Dr. David Wardy, and we're bringing you another episode of the Dr. Dad's Podcast. I'm with my main man, Dr. Nick Jensen. Dr. Nicholas, what's up, man? Uh, just living the dream, buddy. I'm so happy to be here on this call today with just a, a legend of a doctor that we get to interview on one of my favorite lifestyle practices, the breath. So I can't, I can't wait to chat. We've talked a lot about breathing, right? I mean, very, very important. I think something that a lot of people take for granted of how important this is, especially as we're developing early in life. And then even as adults, how we handle stress. And we're going to learn a whole lot more today uh, from Dr. Meilan Han. So she wrote a book called Breathing Lessons, A Doctor's Guide to Lung Health. And she is a professor of medicine and chief of pulmonary and critical care at the University of Michigan and a spokesperson for the American Lung Association. Um, she received her medical degree from the University of Washington in Seattle and completed her residency in internal medicine and fellowship in pulmonary and critical care medicine at the University of Minnesota, uh, Michigan. Uh, she directs the NIH-sponsored research on chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Dr. Melon, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you guys for having me. So, Doc, we're going to get started, just kind of hit it off. So tell me real quick, what are some things that are just common misconceptions about the lungs that most people wouldn't know? Let's see. That's a good question. Well, one thing I think is most people may not realize that your lungs don't really stop growing until your mid-20s. So when we think about, uh, you know, at what age is should the legal limit be for smoking or how important is it to keep kids away from vaping? It's really important because you're, because kids may never actually hit their full lung growth if they're constantly being bombarded by particulate matter and, and, and toxic fumes. So, so that's one thing. Uh, another thing that sort of is a companion to that is that, uh, there's some really interesting research that came out a few years ago to suggest that roughly half of adults that have the most common lung, one of the most common lung diseases, which is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, do not have it because of accelerated uh, lung function decline because they smoked. Roughly half of people uh, have CPD because they didn't have adequate lung development before they got to adulthood. So that means that the number of people that are being impacted by all sorts of things, respiratory infections, and we can talk about it, but all the bad things that can happen either in the womb or when you're growing up, is actually a lot of people, way more than we ever realized. And I think maybe the final thing that, that, that kind of adds to this story is that you can have a lot wrong with your lungs and not know it. A lot has to go wrong before you get symptoms. We can actually all function on one lung just fine. So you've got to have less than one lung essentially left before you might actually notice anything. And because we don't do any routine screening, like think how many times you've had your blood pressure checked in the doctor's office and how often we check lung function, which is almost never unless something goes wrong. Most people could be, many people could be walking around 
uh, with problems and have no idea. That's mind blowing. I mean, when you say one lung, are you talking about one lobe of one lung? Or? No, like one lung. We could, yeah. you know, we have patients with, you know, who knows, lung cancer, different things that will yeah. take out a whole lung and you can do okay. You have the other ones healthy. You actually, I mean, just like a kidney, right? We have kidney donors, et cetera. Um, you, you can actually function on, on, on one lung. And that's why I know you can actually lose a lot before you would actually notice. And that's probably one of the scariest things. There's this uh, really interesting piece of research that was done during the pandemic at the University of Michigan. And they looked at patients who had long haul COVID. And they actually went back and looked at CAT scans of patients before they ever got COVID. And they found a surprising number actually had inflammation on their CAT scans and were never told they had lung disease before they ever got sick. And so I think that undiagnosed lung injury, lung inflammation has contributed to this huge heterogeneity that we've seen in how people get, how sick people get with COVID. Mm. Yeah, that's significant. Can you, can you go back to the second point you made just around lung development? Like break that down a little bit, because I think most people would expect that, of course, my lungs develop properly, but why, why would they not? Yeah. So all sorts of things can go wrong. So in the book, I, I think about the lungs in three separate phases. So there's that prenatal phase and everything that happens in the womb. There's everything that happens after, after you're born until you hit that peak lung function. And then unfortunately for all of us, it's all downhill. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds a little morbid. (laughs) Oh, it's just, it's just varying degrees of how bad, how bad is it after that? So, but in the womb, all sorts of things can go wrong. So interestingly, even though we're not technically breathing in the womb, a maternal exposure to tobacco, nicotine, air pollution actually can impact a child's risk for asthma and impact lung function growth, um, both in the womb and, and then the respiratory health later. Turns out there's some research that shows that nicotine exposure in particular can cause the airways to, as they form, to become too long and tortuous. Mm-hmm. And if that happens, then it can predispose the airways uh, to um, having a, a, what we call air trapping. They become obstructed and, and it's hard to get your air out. And that's the same thing that we see with asthma and, and COPD. So what that means is, you know, even though they're, it's somewhat debatable as to whether electronic cigarettes are safer than, than conventional ones, uh, it doesn't matter for that. It just nicotine exposure actually can can harm harm the developing fetus. So, so you know, mom exposures, uh, you know, before childhood can impact things. Mom nutrition, being born early, is a huge risk factor. So, the lungs. One of the the sort of really cool things about the lungs that I'm sure you guys both know is that it makes this really amazing chemical called surfactant. And it's surfactant that allows these tiny little bubbles to stay open. Otherwise, the surface tension from water would be too high and the little airways would collapse or the little air sacs would collapse. But surfactant doesn't get made until the very, very end of development. And it gets made uh, a little bit late for boys as compared to girls. So even being born a little early uh, can uh, predispose particularly boys. Uh, to getting certain forms of respiratory distress in infancy that can then um, increase the risk for having respiratory problems later. I saw a uh, patient recently at the hospital who, and this is something I do now with all my patients. I'm an adult pulmonologist, but 
But when I take a new history now on patients, I always start with the same question, which is tell me about your birth. Were you born on time, early? Uh, were there any issues? Were you on oxygen? And, you know, I, I saw this uh, person recently and I asked those questions because I always do. And and he says to me, oh, well, yeah, I, I was born early. And actually, I was on oxygen for, you know, the first cup on and off for the first year of life. But, you know, over time, I kind of grew out of it. And and I'm fine. And yeah, I saw a doctor for a while, but, you know, I haven't had any problems until recently. Well, looking back, you know, this uh, poor kid had really impaired lung function and probably had been, it had been so since birth, but he'd sort of fallen out of that medical system. Um, nobody was really keeping track of it. And so, so that's something that I, I always think about when I, when I see new patients, but then, you know, during childhood, there's so many other things. There's respiratory infections. There's there's indoor air pollution, there's outdoor air pollution, there's just, you know, secondhand cigarette smoke, vaping, all, just all sorts of things that, you know, happen uh, during life uh, to many of us. But, but, you know, sometimes you just don't know how much accumulated injury there is, because unlike a growth chart, right? So I take my son to the pediatrician, I know if he's falling off or, you know, ahead or, or whatever, we don't actually measure the lungs, nobody really knows. So what would you say would be a good measurement to assess the quality of the lungs over, over time? Is it like, is there, is there a way to do some, some version of a growth chart? Well, you can, so it's hard to do on like really little kids cause they can't, they don't follow directions super well, but, but you know, once they get around, you know, middle, middle school, we can actually do pulmonary function, but you know, one of the, well, one of sort of the realities of practicing medicine in the modern evidence-based era is that nobody wants to do any tests or pay for any tests unless there's something actionable. So for instance, you know, all the arguments over what, when's the right time to start mammograms? Should we get, should we check PSAs? You know, they go round and round about this. And so the argument has always been, well, what are we gonna do about it? If, 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 I, if I see that my child's lung function is low or falling off, maybe, you know, maybe there is nothing that can be done. But, to be honest, I think the flip question, and this has been harder for me to argue, is that maybe I as a physician wouldn't do anything different, but that doesn't mean that that I as a parent or I as a young adult wouldn't do anything differently, right? Mm. Maybe I would make sure if I knew I had impaired lung function from birth, I would definitely make sure I didn't smoke. I would definitely make sure I didn't have, you know, I wore respiratory protection if I was, you know, doing some you know, dusty job. I might even choose my career differently if I knew that I had this, you know, predisposition. So, so that's the, the tricky part. It's been really hard to argue uh, with sort of the evidence-based medicine crown that this is something that we should do, you know, necessarily institute. But I do think it would impact, you know, patient behavior. What, what a fascinating point to bring up. And, and it, it shows to some degree, some of the limitations of, you know, uh, current conventional practice. Um, I mean, us, Dr. David and I being in, in sort of the functional and naturopathic chiropractic world, we would, we would, you know, talk about diet and nutrition and, and all sorts of other things that one could do. And, and a, a way to quantify uh, a function is definitely going to drive a different patient behavior. But if there was really no direct change unless there's asthma medication or some sort of outcome that can that can take place through you know a therapeutic approach in the hospital or, or that doctor-patient relationship but what, what an interesting way to, to look at things 
Yeah, I mean, there are certain, you know, so the interesting thing is we're always focused on sort of defense, but there are actually some yeah. things that we can do a little bit more offensively. So, for instance, there's some in data that um, if, you know, if you are smoking or around smoke when you're pregnant, um, there is some data that um, vitamin C supplementation can offset um, some of those harmful effects. We know that vitamin D is really important for immune function. And there's some data suggest that Mediterranean diets in, uh, in uh, either moms when they're pregnant or kids growing up um, can actually help promote um, uh, good lung function later in life. There's also some really interesting data around exercise, which we always think about exercise as being more for heart health. But there's actually this study that shows that peak fitness achieved at your peak fit aerobic fitness levels achieved in young adulthood actually translated to better lung function later in life. And the more you were able to maintain or even improve your aerobic fitness, the higher your level of lung function later in life. And we don't know, it could be that, you know, lungs have a muscular component, right? That there's the rib cage and that helps us breathe. And so it could just be, well, these people are stronger, they're exercising more. But there is this also separate thought that it could be that the exercise is anti-inflammatory and it's helping to combat a lot of the stuff that we're kind of breathing in and exposing our lungs to on a daily basis. And maybe that, that decrease in inflammation is actually helping promote lung health um, over time. So for me, that sort of proactive piece is, really interesting. And I'm hopeful that we'll get more and more research uh, on that as we move forward. I have a quick question. This might be a dumb question, hopefully not. But is there any research showing that people that are nose breathers versus mouth breathers has an impact on lung health, like long term, or any implications there that you've seen? So I know some people have talked about that recently. And there's, you know, and there's different theories on it. I am not aware of any intrinsic studies that have been done on that. But what I will say is that our, um, we were designed to breathe through our noses. And the reason for that is several fold. For one thing, uh, you know, in order to function, the lungs at the same time are trying to filter, right? And there's all sorts of harmful pathogens and particulate matter that are coming in. But the mouth doesn't have any filter function. The nose has nasal turbinates. It's got it's got um, you know hairs that stick out. There's a lot of things that happen, and also um, the nose humidifies the air, um, and so there's all this the, this this built-in you know evolutionary function that the nose has to prepare um, to prepare us for breathing. Um, but, you know, in the end, I don't think, I think we as humans are naturally nose breathers. We become mouth breathers for a reason, usually. It's not like people say, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to be a nose breather or I'm going to be a mouth breather. Usually people end up being mouth breathers because they have chronically clogged sinuses or nasal passages for some reason. And so, so it's hard to say, well, those people are unhealthy because they, you know, it, they had something already going on that, ca that, that caused them to go go in that direction for their breathing. So I think it's, you know, when you look at associations, it's a little bit tricky. Um, but, but it is true that we are biologically designed to function breathing through our noses. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, I, I think of, uh, 
you know, a lot of the, the breath practices, of, you know, yogic philosophy or yeah. breath techniques. So, I mean, there's definitely some that definitely incorporate the mouth, but vast majority are, are through the nasal passageways. I'm curious, like, what kind of daily practices do you do to, uh, to support lung health? Or do you, do you have a breathing practice? Well, I don't necessarily have a breathing practice. I try to uh, get enough aerobic exercise in, which is a little bit hard because I feel like I'm on Zoom 24-7 now. I can't, <laughs> I can't, at least I used to be like walking into the office and, there were, and the hospital system's big. So I get like at least like a mile in like walking, but on Zoom, it's really bad now. So I, every once in a while, I'll sneak in a Zoom call on the Peloton or the treadmill or something like that. So it's, so that's one thing. But, you know, what's interesting is once, we know that 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 the control of the breath definitely brings about relaxation responses where and, and the flip side of that is that patients who have impaired breathing due to lung disease, et cetera, are naturally prone to anxiety. And, and we see that in a lot of our patients and my patients will say, why am I so anxious? Why, you know, why am I depressed? Why? And I'm like, because you can't breathe. It, it's just a natural physiologic response when you can't breathe to go to that fight or flight panic mode. And so some of the things that I will work on with my patients, so there's this really common technique that, that you've probably heard of, but, but that we use a lot called purse lip breathing. And, you know, patients will take in a, a deep breath through their nose and then they'll breathe out, which I realize nobody can see me here on the podcast, but breathe out against sort of closed lips. And what that does is it causes some back pressure uh, into the lungs. And that back pressure can help open up some of the small airways that are prone to collapsing. And so, you know, um, we will, for, you know, for patients that have breathing problems, one of the bad things that can happen is the more anxious they get, particularly when they're exercising, um, air can actually get trapped in their lungs. And, and the faster they breathe and the more stressed they get, the more air gets trapped. And then and then their lungs actually have an even harder time because there's so much air trapped in. They become they they um, develop a mechanical disadvantage. And so one of the things we you know talk to patients about is trying to slow down the breath and use the purse lip breathing to try to release some of that trapped air. Um, and and that really can help the patients sort of calm down, break that cycle, and 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 kind of you know restore some some peace I guess to their um to their breathing so that is I guess something sometimes that I will do when I am feeling particularly anxious or stressed is to you know sometimes kind of resort to to that kind of maneuver myself mm -hmm. um but I guess I'm curious what what kind of what what do you two do go ahead David I'll leave it to the yogi first because this okay. guy's the master. <laughs> I mean, I do I do all sorts of different kinds, from alternate nostril breathing to breath holds. Um, we do. There's something in uh, yoga technique: one minute breath. So one minute <laughs> breath hold on the in breath, on the out breath. Uh, breath of fire, like that rapid, mm -hmm. it's called pranayama breath. Um, a lot of that, and then we do something called satali breath, which is sort of like a purse purse lip one, where you you breathe oh, or you okay. inhale through purse lips and that's meant to be cooling, but again, a parasympathetic uh, invocation of the body of the nervous yeah. system to really, you know, and, and release some heat and, and whatnot. So, uh, I mean, some mixture of those things, but breath of fire, that, that rapid breath from the, from the navel and really activating the diaphragm is, is definitely a, a staple in my, in my daily practice. David, did you, do you want to share 
Yeah, I mean, I do a lot of just big diaphragmatic breaths. A lot of times I just sit with my hands at the bottom of my rib cage. I focus on expanding the diaphragm, just big inhales, long exhales. And then I do a lot of Wim Hof where you're holding the breath like Nick Singh for extended periods. I do multiple rounds. I teach my patients a lot of vagal nerve stuff with their breathing techniques and stuff. So more easy, quick ones. Uh, like I said, he's the yogi master. So he usually has the, the Rolodex of breath exercises that he's got. But yeah, I mean, so important, right? Um, and and these are things I think over time uh, probably helped the lungs, you know, in the long run, just from building up more capacity and things like that. So yeah. I do Sorry, go ahead. No, uh, go ahead, because I have another question, maybe on another topic. Oh, I was just going to mention, you know, for patients that are in the hospital that are sick, um, we will work hard to, you know, um, try to get their lungs expanded. So like if they're on a ventilator, we'll actually sometimes give them these really large breaths to try to open up the lung bases. When you're just sitting, and particularly when you're lying down, certain parts of the lung actually just kind of get squished. You don't really get the whole lung open. Um, and there are some concerns that if the air doesn't really get down there, you can actually build up infection. So um, particularly when we have patients in the hospital that are not mobile, um, we really do try to get them, you know, kind of doing, doing some of these, you know, larger breath holds to try to get um, air down into the base uh, of the lungs. Now, the hope is that for most of us on a daily basis that are not stuck in the hospital or totally immobile, through daily activity and hopefully exercise, you'll get some of those big breaths naturally um, to try to get everything opened up. But um, I think it does make a lot of sense if you're not getting a lot of activity to, you know, sometimes consciously think about, about taking in those larger breaths just to kind of get everything aerated and, and, you know, kind of prevent things from building up and, and infection and things like that. Awesome. Can you, can you, sorry, David, I, I mean, I got so many questions. Oh, I right, feel right. like I, I want to jump in and ask you, cause you brought up the ventilator. Why is it that, I mean, maybe you can talk about some of the pathophysiology of, of long COVID. Cause I know that's been part of your book as well. Why is it that people didn't do as well on ventilators? Maybe they did on like passive oxygen and, or, you know, like it, we, we were hearing like the hospital reports of people not doing as well in ventilation. Can you, can you share some of your own experiences with, with those particular individuals? And, and I heard stuff about like flipping people over onto their stomach uh, as some other uh, treatment strategies, but please, please share on, on some of those uh, topics as well. There was a huge amount of debate early on in the pandemic about whether the really severe lung injury we're seeing with COVID, which we call ARDS, acute respiratory um, distress syndrome, where the lungs just kind of white out on x-ray yeah. and they're just full of fluid whether that's similar or different to what we've seen with other viruses or other things. And I think the ultimate conclusion is that it's similar. Uh, I think part of the reason why we saw really high death rates on the ventilator is because you don't end up on the ventilator unless you're really, really sick. Yeah. And so some of it's just selection bias by, you know, we, it was a last resort measure. Having said that, I think we did see more use of what we call high flow nasal cannula oxygen during the pandemic, which is a really, it's delivered through a special nose piece. It's, it's humidified, it's heated, and they really can deliver high levels of oxygen in. And, you know, even before the pandemic, we knew that there were certain things about mechanical ventilation that were not good. So 
let's back up for a moment and just talk about how we normally breathe and then how that's all completely messed up when we, we're on a ventilator. So Perfect. normally when we breathe, your diaphragm contracts and it, and, and as it, there's like, it's like a twin dome. And as it contracts, the diaphragm drops. And when it drops, the lungs drop with it. And that creates negative pressure and the air just gets sucked in. And then the lungs actually are a bit like a rubber band. When that, uh, when that diaphragm relaxes, they, the lungs just naturally contract and the air just passively comes out. When you're on a ventilator, we're blowing air in. So think about how much more uncomfortable that is. It's not negative pressure breathing, it's positive pressure breathing. So in order to keep someone on a ventilator, I, I have to do a couple of things. I have to put a tube down your throat and I have to bypass every single protective mechanism that, that we were, you know, uh, naturally given uh, to keep crap out of our lungs. We're bypassing that. And we're now creating a conduit between the outside environment and your lungs. And now I'm sedating you so that uh, if you were going to cough anything that ended up down there, you probably aren't now because, <laughs> because you're so much less conscious. And so Part of it is we always know that putting someone on a ventilator is a risk for getting pneumonia. It, we're just, we're, we're asking for it um, by, you know, what we do. And then the other thing we already knew was that uh, if you overventilate the lungs when you um, are treating someone, so you stretch the lungs too big, you give them breaths that are too big, uh, it actually can really injure the lungs just from mechanical stress. And we've, it's taken some time, but we've learned that and that's something we now know. Um, so it's much better now than it used to be. We have all sorts of protective things that we do to try to reduce risk for infection and reduce lung injury, but it's not perfect. And so I, I think it's a combination of just people being really, really sick, COVID being really bad, not having a lot of good treatments for it. And then just the fact that there are, there are downsides that, that go along with, with being on a ventilator, but sometimes we have absolutely no choice. It's either that or, or that's it. Um, but I think we've always erred on the side of, uh, you know, it, it's a last resort, but on the other hand, the other thing that we always fear, I think as ICU physicians is you don't want to wait too late. So if you wait too late, then, then you've got a patient that's crashing and burning is in the, in the, a risk of coding before you can get them stabilized. So so it is tricky, but I think we learned a lot. Honestly, for me, one of the, I think, kind of sort of things that I want people to know and, and to kind of learn is that we actually didn't have a lot of good treatments for this even before the pandemic. And so this is an area that I think we really need to work on <laughs> as a society is trying to how to how do we better support patients with 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 failing lungs. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And then can you can you share that piece about flipping people over into the stomach? And yeah. is this something that they can do at home? And, you know, maybe talk about some of those strategies. So it relates to what we were just talking about. And that is uh, that when you've got a patient who is lying on their back for a really long period of time, you have two things going on. You have the air is going to settle in in the upper portion of the lung, which when I say upper, when you're lying down, that really means anterior. So that's the front of your chest. Okay. And the back part of your lung is going to get squished. But unfortunately, what also happens is gravity's at work. And where's your blood going? Well, your blood is going to start pulling in the back of the lungs towards your back, towards your vertebra. So now we've got aerated oxygen coming in the front of the chest and blood going to the back of the chest. 
And the whole goal of the lung is to send blood through the, through, you know, past the air to pick up oxygen, get rid of carbon dioxide. So it's a total mismatch. When you flip people over, um, this allows the aerate, the nice, freshly open lung to meet up with where all the blood is, um, which would be sort of be, you know, I guess on your chest, if you're lying on your chest. And it allows there to be um, a better match. And it, we call this prone positioning. Um, and we knew about prone positioning well before the pandemic. And it's been a technique that we've, a uh, trick that we've really relied on for years when the thing that we don't like doing in the ICU is turning up the amount of oxygen. I know things like oxygen bars, et cetera, are popular, but to be honest, we're not designed to breathe high levels of oxygen. And in fact, it's toxic. Uh, and so when we have to turn up the amount of oxygen on the ventilator, we're always concerned about toxicity. We're always trying to get that down as fast as we can. We can get those numbers down faster when we flip patients over. Of course, once you flip them over, then the settling occurs and then, and then you've got, so you've got to kind of keep doing it. Um, but, but that is really, that's really the idea behind prone positioning is to match the lung that's getting blood with the lung that's getting well aerated. Perfect. Thank you. David, go ahead. Well, I have another question. So expand more on when there's too much oxygen, this creates toxicity. So, you know, oxygen's really, obviously really important. Our hemoglobin molecules need it. Uh, and, uh, it, it, you know, it, it's important for all sorts of, ox, you know, oxidative metabolism throughout the entire body. But, um, you know, we only have a certain percentage of it typically in, in room air. And, uh, you know, we like to keep the, the amount of oxygen in the blood at a certain amount because we know it's healthy for, you know, everything in the body to function. Um, but oxygen also has some bad, I mean, we talk about oxidative stress, free radicals, that also comes along with oxygen and extra oxygen. And so we know um, that in an ICU setting, leaving patients on really high levels of oxygen, say sometimes we have to turn it up to 100%, um, that actually can cause lung injury and lung inflammation and be toxic to the lungs over long periods of time. Um, now, in normal circumstances, none of us would do that, right? I mean, and even if you were breathing a little bit of extraction, there's all sorts of other room air and other, other kinds of gases that are coming in. It's sort of this unique situation when you're on the ventilator where you're kind of bypassing everything and all you're getting is coming down through this tube um, when you're getting those super high levels of, of oxygen that we know that can be harmful. So sometimes we have to do it to keep the brain functioning. Uh, you know, if the lungs really are failing, but we, you know, we're doing everything we can every day, every hour, we're coming by, what's the oxygen at, get it down, get it down, you know, until we can get it in a range that we feel more comfortable with. That makes sense. All right, Doc, I'll get to my, my other question I have for you. So okay. We were talking earlier about in early development with children, how important it is for, for us to develop properly and how the lungs are still growing into our mid twenties, I believe you said. Yeah. So, you know, me and me and Dr. Nick are dads. We have families. I don't know if you're a parent, if you are. I this, do. I have, I have a uh, eight-year-old. Awesome. I, I do as well. And I believe Nick does as well, right? Ten and seven. Yeah. Seven. Seven. That's right. Yeah. He's close. Um, so as parents, what are things that we should be thinking about for our children as, as they're developing? 
Yeah. So there's a whole bunch of stuff. And I have to be honest with you. It's funny because I've done, I've had interviews with a, a couple other people. I actually got to do this. I don't know if you're familiar with Goop magazine, but I got to do one. Yeah, yeah. Goop. And, yeah. and so we were talking about some of these different things, but you know, I didn't really learn a lot of this in medical school. We don't talk about it that much, right? So I had to do a lot of research for the book to try to figure out, you know, okay, we, you know, mostly in medical school, all we talk about is what do I do when someone shows up in my office with a problem and how do I diagnose it? And, but this is a totally different way of thinking, right? So this is how can I, you know, as a parent or, you know, just a, a person preserve my own lung health over time or that of my sons, for instance. So, uh, you know, there's stuff that we already talked about, which is, you know, making sure kids get age appropriate vaccines and, you know, get treated for respiratory infections, you know, and, and, and that sort of common sense thing. But there's all sorts of things that you need to think about with respect to air pollution, I think, in the home and outdoors that we don't talk about a lot. So there is for instance, uh, data that if you have schools that are near freeways, that those kids will have worse lung function, more asthma exacerbations. And that lung function actually gets better when the children are moved out of that environment. So that means when we're doing city planning, we don't really want kids near, um, near freeways, if, you know, schools near freeways, if we can help it. A lot of schools, the EPA actually has like a, a toolkit um, for anti-idling. There's, I don't know about Canada, but idling's gone off the hook. Uh, it, in the, the 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 car lines have gone crazy uh, during the pandemic. <laughs> so, uh, but you don't want cars just sitting around pumping out exhaust um, around schools. You want people to turn their cars off. So, you know, there's some simple things you can actually keep. Um, track of now you can't always control exactly what city you live in. I get that. And there are cities that are going to probably have healthier air than not, but you can think about where your house is maybe within that community. You can, there's websites air now well, in the U S airnow.gov and you could figure out, you know, if it's, you, you know, maybe not choosing to have your, you know, necessarily have that, that huge outdoor activity on really bad air days. Um, you know, uh, in the, you know, some people live in apartment buildings and making sure that your condo association or the housing association limits um, smoking because that no matter what you do, it's going to get into your apartment if your next door neighbor uh, is smoking. And then if within the home, there's all sorts of other things to think about, like um, volatile organic chemicals that are in all sorts of products, cleaning products. Um, but you know, fortunately now you can get like low VOC paint. You can ask to have your carpet aired out before it's installed. I mean, if you think about all those, like, you know, during construction and stuff or whether you're cleaning, if it smells bad, it's probably not good for you. And it's, um, you know, I used to never think about putting a mask on when I was cleaning out a dusty garage, but I do now cause I have them around and I, and I, part of it's just, it's, it's sort of being just, just being conscious and, there actually was an interesting study out of Canada that showed it was a population-based study called CanCold. And they uh, asked, you know, they measured lung function, asked people a bunch of questions about their home environment and things like that. 
And they actually found that um, there was an increased risk, particularly in women for chronic lung disease, if you had a wood burning stove in the home. And I grew up with a wood burning stove. I grew up in Idaho and, and that was just sort of the norm there. If you have to have wood burning stove in your home, uh, there are cleaner stoves that have better standards. But to be honest, when I was looking at it recently, I mean, it means they can only put so much smoke out, but I don't know that I really want any of that, you know, um, in my environment. There's things like I have a gas range turning on the hood when you're, when you're, um, when you're, when you're cooking, having your home checked for radon, uh, radon is, is one of the major causes of, of lung cancer. Um, when it's, you know, I, you know, when, when it's really bad air days, I will close the windows and run a HEPA filter, particularly in the bedrooms where, um, people are sleeping. So I realize that's a really long list of things, but it's really just about common sense and just thinking about if you smell something or if you're burning something, it's probably not good for your lungs. And you need to think about how to, how to limit exposure for, for you and for your kids. So, so I realized that was a really long list, but it's it, so it, good what you're sharing. Uh, that. Perfect. People really need to know this. Yeah, this is massive. Yeah. Thank you. So are you, you going to add something else on there? Oh, well, I mean, you know, so, so those, I'm trying to think, uh, those, I, I would say those are sort of, you know, sort of the, the main things, but like, there's even stuff like in the workplace, like, um, copier and toner spills. People don't think about the fact that those are super, super fine particles. So one of the things that I do as part of my research is we actually take lungs out and I look at them and I actually, I look at them under a super powerful microscope. And, um, but even if you just take a lung out and look at it, no matter, even if the person didn't smoke, um, you will still see that that, that sort of what should be a pristine kind of pink balloon will have black pock marks everywhere. And you have to realize that, okay, I go out into the garden and I'm pretty, you know, I'm like, well, I don't, it's going to be hard to, you know, scrub that dirt from out underneath my fingernails. So I'm going to wear gloves, right? We don't really have, like, I don't, I, I can't scrub my lungs out really the way I would wash my hands. I mean, we do have the, these hair cells that and mucus that we cop up and the lungs do try to do what they can. But honestly, a lot of this stuff just stays. It just stays. It sits there for forever. And that's why when we pull lungs out of people that are, you know, really old, it'll just have black stuff everywhere, even wow. again. So you just have to think, most of the stuff that I'm breathing in, it's never leaving. So you've got to just be mindful. Like there it's no, and now that we have masks everywhere, right? Just throw in that mask. If you're going to be cleaning up something dusty or dirty or, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm just so much more mindful now than I honestly, than I, that I was before the pandemic. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think uh, many people are. I think they're paying more attention to it. I, I mean, my, my parents, uh, I grew up in a concrete manufacturing plant. I, I grew up in the Okanagan part of, uh, not that that means anything to anyone who's in places where you guys are at, but incredible amount of orchards. Wow. Sprays and like uh, all over the place. I, we used to run behind the spray machines and grab apples off the tree. I, I had childhood asthma. I grew out of it at some point. My brother didn't. Um, you know, these, all these little things you don't think about, but we were constantly around chemicals yeah. as kids, right? And you never saw people wearing masks. Right. 
Um, I'm curious, uh, one thing, what about colognes and perfumes and stuff like that? You know, it's funny because some people, it's hard to say because there's so many different kinds of perfumes that come yeah. so many different kinds of chemicals and some where they're trying to limit VOCs and things and somewhere it's not. So it's really hard. It's funny. I was even going to, when I was writing the book, I was even going to go so far to even go near the subject of candles, but it's so, it's yeah. so, and, Another air one, pressures and like, but yeah. there are certain chemicals in some that just are probably not good, yeah. but it's sort of hard to comment just generally speaking. So um, it's funny because my, my, I did have a section on it and my publisher was like, you got to take this out because you're going to have everybody <laughs> freaked out <laughs> about <laughs> That's hilarious. You know, burning their their candle at bedtime or whatever. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, I think a little bit of anything is probably not a big deal. Do I wear perfume? Yes, you know. Um, but I, you know, uh, I, you know, try to limit. Like my son, for some reason, loves fire and <laughs> <laughs> loves loves outside fires and loves setting candles on fire in the house. And I just, you know, again, try to be mindful keep it reasonable and you can't keep everything out but um but but there are certainly are some compounds in certain air fresheners in particular that that have been shown to be harmful yeah, definitely i mean it's interesting to see the stats uh, i looked at this recently it's something like 3.8 uh, million people die every year as a result of indoor air pollution or and 4.2 million for the outdoor like uh, I don't think it's really talked about enough. And so I'm so happy that you're bringing attention to it. And, and if we have some tools that can mitigate or, you know, even just having the awareness of it, so we avoid it wherever we can. Um, is there any truth to uh, like, what if, what if you get breathing in really low quality, uh, like where you got low quality masks? Like, is there, there's, there's just some information about like, I've seen some uh, some articles, and I don't know if it's valid or not, but about some of the rubber and some of the stuff that gets inhaled in through the lungs as a result of the quality of the mask. Have you have you seen any of that? That's interesting. I actually haven't, but it is a good point because you know masks are being made everywhere with with question of you know totally the standards could be all over the place, yeah. particularly when you're trying to find good filtration masks for kids, right? Yeah. Well, that's why it worries me, you know, because some of these kids are wearing them all day long, too, and, you know, doing exercise in them or, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's unfortunately, it's, you know, it's a really, really difficult. I wish I, I don't actually have some really great um, solution for this because there's it's so difficult to source. I mean, sometimes I'll try to I, I'm not promising that it's better, but I'll try to find something made in North America yeah. <laughs> where, you know, um, totally. But it is, it is a, it, it's a, it is a good point. You don't want to be adding to the stuff that you breathe in because there's some horrible chemical on. I mean, there's some common sense again thing. You probably just smell it. You know, if it smells really bad or has a really strange chemical odor, it's probably not the best mask to be using. Yeah. That's sort of a common sense approach. But what a, what a great reminder for people to just use your senses. Oh like, yeah. Use a sense of smell. Like, we often just relate smell to like, oh, the food smells amazing. I'm going to eat it. But like, we're not using our smell as a sense of like a defense mechanism, defense. which, which so we could, if, right? Right. If you smell something funny in your home, you, it, that's not good. Whether it's gas or something else, then it's probably not good for you. Yeah. So you should investigate it. Totally. Or, or like when, when I exercise and my wife goes like, dude, you stink. <laughs> like that, there's, a, there's a whole other defense mechanism, right? Stay away from me. <laughs> uh, David, go ahead, buddy. 
so doc one of the the facts that i saw with some of the stuff i was reading upon is copd is one of the major causes of death yet we're not really funding a lot of research towards these type things i think it ranks like third or fourth right so oh, it's you... like at the bottom it's much so believe it or not lung disease was the number one cause of death in the u.s last year i don't know about canada it might oh, have been wow wow yeah. yeah, so, I mean, are they really dumping a lot of research grants towards something like this, especially since last year it's showing that was no, the number one cause? Or? They're not. So the thing that's been really frustrating for me is that yeah, we, don't get me wrong, we've had some amazing research all over the world that's gone on during the pandemic for developing vaccines, for developing antivirals. We're doing stuff faster than I ever would have thought possible. And so there have been a lot of really great and amazing advances, no question. But we really haven't seen, we've really seen very little investment into like building a better ventilator or uh, how can we keep people from getting, you know, uh, getting their lungs injured in the first place? How do we increase, uh, you know, awareness around lung disease? How do we how do we figure out how to regenerate lungs or heal heal you know inflamed lungs faster? Um, and that's one of the things that's been super super frustrating for me. I actually um, wrote an up you know so I, I wrote the book and was hoping that 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 you know we had like for the first time ever people are actually thinking about their lungs right. So I thought okay fine you know surely it'll occur to somebody that we need, you know, to better fund this type of work and, and, and public awareness campaigns and things like that. Nothing happened. So then around Christmas time, I said, all right, this is ridiculous. So I wrote an op-ed. Um, it got published in the LA times kind of talking about this exact issue. And, and I still haven't gotten much traction, <laughs> but, and I keep writing my, my, my uh, congressional officials pointing out that, that, that the, most recent appropriations bill for pandemic preparedness still has almost nothing in it for, uh, you know, you know, better, you know, better treating patients on a ventilator, things like that. And so it's, it is a bit of an uphill battle. I think, I think part of the problem is that traditionally uh, patients with lung problems are in the, in a bad position to advocate for themselves. So a lot of people associate stupidity with smoking so now it turns out at least a quarter of people who have COPD have never smoked, hmm. but we still associate it with smoking. And so there's this sense that, well, you know, it's their fault. It's their problem. Why should we pour energy into this when it's, it's self-inflicted? And, you know, it, we, we don't do that with other diseases, though. We don't say, you know, we're not going to really invest in anti-cholesterol because you ate that cheeseburger, and it's all your fault. We don't do that. But for some reason, we do it with, with lung diseases. And then the other piece of the equation is that unfortunately, when you look at who ultimately gets exposed to bad air, um, a lot of times it's, it's, uh, you know, associated with lower socioeconomic status. And our and also our minority communities. And they're the ones having the jobs where they're exposed to the pollution and the dust, or, you know, they've been targeted with, with, with tobacco. And, uh, and so they're often not really in a position to advocate for themselves. And so I think historically, the combination of those two factors has really led, unfortunately, to a lack of funding and a, and a lack of awareness. Uh, and so it's, it, you know, it, 
what I, the message, honestly, that I'm trying to get out there, which, which it's, it's challenging, but this is not some other person's problem. This is our problem. You know, one of the most interesting pieces of research that came out of the pandemic, I thought, was the simple study where they just looked at um, people being exposed to wildfires in the American West. And they found in excess roughly 20,000 cases of COVID and 1,000 deaths from COVID because of lung inflammation caused by the excess particulate matter from the wildfires. So what that says to me, you know, that was just one scenario where we could actually measure it, right? What that says to me is there's a lot of stuff going on for a lot of people <laughs> that we're not measuring that's in putting them at risk for all sorts of, of bad things. And just because you don't carry a diagnosis or some, you know, of lung disease does not mean that you don't have some level of lung inflammation or lung injury that over the long haul potentially could cause you, could cause you harm. Um, and again, I'm not trying to be an alarmist, but I'm trying to help people be aware and sort of embrace the issue as everyone's issue, not some other person's issue that, you know, we as a, as sort of a society as in a community have to have to sort of rally around and, and start thinking about. Yeah. I mean, especially when you, I mean, if you're looking at the tissue pathology of even just a generally healthy individual and you're finding these black marks in, in people's lungs, like we, we, I think we, it really raises those alarm bells that, you know, this is affecting everybody, regardless if you're symptomatic for COPD or asthma or have some sort of, you know, lung pathology or you're a major affliction from a respiratory, you know, infection. So uh, I love that you're bringing attention to this. It's incredibly important. Well, I can't tell you how excited I am that <laughs> the people are excited about it. <laughs> Honestly, like we spend so much time looking at uh, environmental influences for why we're feeling the way that we are, why we're not feeling as well as we could be. Yeah. And if we're not paying attention to what we're breathing in on a daily basis, my goodness, like that's, you know, I think of uh, just, just some of the basic necessities to life. You know, you can go a few days without food or water, but I mean, you can't go more than a few minutes without your breath. And it's like literally the most important thing that we have in our body that keeps us alive. You know, it's, it's that important. Yeah, it's it's rather incredible how how little we actually think about it, right? On a regular basis, until until things sort of went wrong, particularly you know with the uh, with the pandemic. So it's yeah, it's really and to be honest, it's been a huge learning experience for me because if you think about it, you know, Western medicine, and I'm the head of a large Western medicine division, um, but you know, just the way we practice, everything's about you know, it's very disease focused. Uh, you know, even the way we bill, I, the ICD-9, ICD-10 codes, I've got to find a disease. I can't, you know, there's no, we're, there's no prevention. Code. Very, there are few, but there's very few prevention codes, right? So we're, you know, so all like all of the stuff that I talk about in my book, there'd be no way I could actually fit it in to a regular visit. And it's actually something we don't even talk to our medical students about. I uh, recently sat down with the, uh, one of my colleagues who runs the um, pulmonary course for the University of Michigan Medical School, and and that we're saying we need we need a new lecture on this, and so we're working on trying to develop some new coursework for our medical students to try to help you know so that they're better educated and they can hopefully better educate the next um, generation of people that they work with as well. Mm -hmm. 
Outside of strategies for prevention, maybe using air filters, you mentioned the HEPA filter. Um, like, is there any movement in drug, drug therapies or anything about uh, lung regeneration or any, like you mentioned vitamin C even being a tool that could be utilized maybe for some of the acute toxicity? Like, is there, I, I know that it's been tossed around a ton, like, oh, N-acetylcysteine is a, is a great tool for, like, is there things in, in, in your world that where they're looking at regeneration or some sort of other strategies biochemically to support lung tissue? Well, there's certainly research going on in that area. So um, some people are doing like stem cell research to try to yeah. figure out if we can help regenerate certain parts uh, of the lung. Um, people are even taking um, uh, like denuded lungs, like so lungs that have come out from, you know, someone who died, et cetera. And then they're kind of stripping it and seeing if they can kind of regrow pieces of it. Unfortunately, I would say right now that all of that type of research is still really in its infancy. Yes, people are doing it, but it's not like we've had tons of dollars and tons of time. So it's still, you know, unfortunately, at least in the United States, it's not been a very regulated industry. And I have patients that have seen advertisements for, oh, come get stem cell, you know, therapy for your lungs. And, and they come back zero better. Yeah. Um, than they were before, because none of this is, still, it's also very investigative and, and nothing's really proving out. So it's that, uh, that type of thing is, is actively, is actively being investigated, but we need more of it. In terms of just this concept of, can we take something that would be an anti-inflammatory and just to try to kind of calm things down? I and mean, there have been, um, there was a big study that um, on vitamin A um, that was done in CBD. Unfortunately, it was negative. Um, there have been a couple of studies looking at vitamin D with sort of most of the benefit being in people that were really deficient, although we know a lot of people in Northern Hemisphere are deficient. So that is something to consider having checked if you know, if you, if you think you might be deficient. Uh, but, but there, you know, and there are drugs, you know, and we saw this a lot during COVID, there are kind of anti inflammatory kind of big gun anti inflammatory drugs that were tried uh, when patients were really sick on the ventilator to see if we could kind of get the, the uh, tide turned with, I would say, kind of varying benefit. Um, but, you know, the, the bottom line is this kind of research and, and those kind of clinical trials are really, really expensive. Uh, and, uh, and so it's just, we, you know, we just haven't had the level of investment into looking at that kind of thing that we have for literally almost every other human condition. Um, so, so um, you know, this is, I've recently been working with a couple of organizations like the American Lung Association and the CPD Foundation to see what we can do to try to, at least in the US kind of lobby Congress. I'm also talking with uh, people in Europe and European Lung Foundation to figure out what we can do in Europe as well to try to kind of, you know, mo mobilize funding agencies to try to really um, really prioritize this. Well, so, I mean, I think it's, it's such a powerful testament to you putting all that work in and writing the book and, you know, giving another avenue to educate the patients. Cause like you said, you can't go through everything in here. So thank you for doing all the work that you're doing to try to really get the message out there that this is, this should be a priority, especially, you know, just modern technology that more industry, we're going to have, more and more we're going to need more and more tools and study and, and research to really support our lungs as the world gets more complex and yeah. complicated right like this is really important 
I, I mean, with climate change alone, it's, you know, and yeah. it's driving higher particle counts, yeah. uh, you know, more allergens, things like that. And then uh, I was reading an article the other day that not only is it driving that, but I guess it's also altering the bat population in China. So they're thinking, you know, that the number of, you know, these kinds of respiratory infections, like we saw with coronavirus could become more frequent. And I think it's going to become more and more of a reality. And to be honest, one of my biggest fears is that, you know, I know everyone is so excited to get past the pandemic. I, I am too. Uh, you know, everybody wants to get back to normal life. Um, but one of my fears is that we'll sort of miss the message that the world had to give us in this, that we actually have to start paying attention to our air quality and, mm. and to climate change. Um, otherwise, we're going to be in really, really bad shape. Yeah, absolutely. David, go ahead. No, I was going to tell her, you know, Doc, keep fighting the good fight. You know, it sounds like it's an upward battle, but I have a feeling in, you know, in a, in a short amount of time, you'll be thankful that you've been putting all the hard work and you've been to bring more attention to something like this. Because it is so important, like Nick is saying, and I don't think enough weight is being given to it. So you're definitely a trailblazer in, in your specialty and, and you're very passionate. You can tell it's very evident. So thank you for what you do. Oh, that's kind. Of, that's uh, really, really kind of you. There's definitely days where I kind of I sit here and I and I just think I'm. What am I doing? <laughs> but that also probably means you're doing it right because no yeah. one else is. And needs to I'm making no progress, but uh, but we but but we won't give up. I mean, there's really there's just too much at stake, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. so. so, Doc, where could everybody find your book if they want to grab a copy? Oh well. Uh, it's it's available at every single major retailer. Um, I guess I don't exactly know all of the retailers in Canada, but uh, in the U.S., it's uh, you know Amazon. Amazon goes everywhere. So Amazon, yeah. Barnes, Noble. I actually um, on my website, drmalenhan.com, I actually have a, a a whole page where it's got all the U.S. as well as European retailers. Uh, and then you can also find all of my social media uh, uh, channels as well. And so for our listeners, I'll put that in the show notes, but check out drmaylanhan.com. And again, the book is Breathing Lessons, A Doctor's Guide to Lung Health. So Doc, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. And uh, it was a joy and a lot of fun to sit and talk with you. You guys were so much fun. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's uh, yeah, absolute pleasure. And uh, I think this is a vitally important book for people to prepare for the future right and and i think that if we all had this awareness and this proactive approach uh we would definitely be much better off for you know next pandemic or the the next challenge that we can face globally so thank you so much for what you're doing Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to subscribe to The Dr. Dads and share with your family and friends. You can also follow and interact with Dr. Nick and Dr. David on Facebook and Instagram for a daily dose of inspiration and the latest in health and wellness. Be well.